Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 3. We will be focusing on on verses 20 and 21, but I'm going to back up to verse 14. Remember, this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and we will be again focusing on the last two verses this morning. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. Each Sunday... After the Lord's Supper, we sing the doxology, but there are actually many doxologies. A doxology is simply a hymn or a poem or words of praise to God. The Greek word doxa means glory. And thus, a doxology sung or spoken to God is a way of ascribing to Him glory, of giving Him praise and honor. Sometimes we use doxologies as benedictions as well. The Apostle Paul has come to the end of this great prayer in the book of Ephesians, and nothing could be more appropriate. You remember he, as we just read, he has already prayed that the Ephesians and us, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. We should recall that everything he has requested of God on their behalf and on our behalf is a matter of pure grace. It's nothing earned. It's the free gift of God. It's theirs and it's ours for the taking. Every single blessing that we enjoy comes by way of the salvation that was initiated by God and provided for us through Jesus Christ. And so when we consider such a great gift, really the only thing left for us to do is to burst forth in song and praise. So I would ask you, have you ever genuinely been moved in that way? So moved by the thoughts of what God has done for you that the only response is one of wanting to dance or sing. Sometimes you see little children do this. They get so excited. They just break into dance or song. Uh, they have to move. They have to express that joy. And I think sometimes we have become so proper and sedated that uh, we're a little bit afraid to do that. Uh, Peggy, today would be the day you can shout out. She tells me frequently that she's tempted to do that, but Gary won't let her. And uh, so uh, y'all be listening for that. Um, if not, if you've not had that experience, then I ask you to look a little deeper, please, a lot deeper perhaps, into what you have been given in Christ. To contemplate, which is again something I don't think we do enough of. Just think about it. Think about it. I was really appreciating the prayer we just heard from Gary. Uh, and, and all the various things he began to list to be thankful 
for. And what we realize very quickly when someone does that is this could go on for a long, long time and we still would not exhaust that list. This is simply a compressed, uh, poetic way of saying thank you for everything. It's just that we can't list everything. There's so much of it. But as we contemplate, as we think about those things, it's helpful. Meditate. In Psalm 81, after we hear in Psalm 81 a rehearsal of all that God had done for Israel, God says that He would be happy to do so much more for them if they would only listen and walk in His ways. Here's what He says. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways, I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you, but they wouldn't listen. So they missed out on some of the blessings that God wanted to give them. But they, so they didn't listen, and as a result, they spent years wandering in the wilderness. They didn't believe what God had promised. They thought it was too good to be true. And so what about you? Do you believe what God has promised you? Are you wandering and still doing things the hard way? The Apostle is admonishing and encouraging and instructing and reminding these Christians and us of how great the power of God is. Isn't it remarkable how often we look to ourselves? We, we look to pop culture, we look to psychologists, we look to medication, we look to a thousand other things when we have been given everything in Christ. And we often go to Him last or worse. Not at all. There are a couple of ways that God has revealed His power to us and thereby He reveals Himself to us. In fact, He makes it evident to everyone. Romans chapter 1 says, What may be known of God is evident or manifest to them. Talking about all people. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they, we, are without an excuse. So first, I want us to consider the objective power, the things that really everybody can see. We can see the power of God objectively, and I think that's why Paul told these believers that he was constantly praying for them that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. I know I, for one, can drive down a road a thousand times, for ten years even, and not notice something. And then suddenly one day I see it, and it was something that was built in you know, 1920, and it's been there all along, but somehow I've missed it, and I'll... Comment, knowing the obvious answer, because it was built in 1920. When did they build that? And Marinelle will say, well, it's been there all along. You just haven't noticed it. Well, it's easy to walk through life and not notice what's obvious. 
what God is doing, what God has done. Perhaps we're blind. Perhaps we're simply distracted. Now, the resurrection is the primary demonstration of God's great power, and he wants us to see, uh, see in that grand demonstration what he wants us to see is we read in Ephesians 3, we already read Ephesians 3, 18 through 20, he is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. That's the the, one of the grandest demonstrations of his power is the resurrection of his son. That very same power, by the way, the text says, is working in you. If we really comprehended that, we would never stumble again. We would never waver, regardless of the circumstances, because the power to take the dead and make them alive is the ultimate power. And so Paul is trying to describe to us that which is without limit. Now unto him, he says, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above. Now he doesn't say he's able to do a little bit above. He says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Think about that. All that we can ask or think. And let's just, let's back up. Let's consider the creation of the cosmos. That's a little thing for us to think about, right? The size, the scope, the detail, the complexity, the beauty. He's way above all of that. I mean, any one thing, any one of those things, you imagine the attention and the power it would take to create one cell. And then think of all the variety of the insects and the animals and the birds and the trees and all the plants and the stars and the planets. And we could just go on and on and on. Just think of that. He's way above it, and he not only has the power to do all things, not only to do them, but to do them easily. He does it without the slightest difficulty, without resistance. It can't be checked. It can't be restrained or frustrated by anyone. He speaks and it's done. Creating from nothing. Let there be light. And there was light. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth. Everything springs from the womb of nothing and obeys his mighty command and it takes whatever form pleases him. You see, one of the problems we have is a little bitty God. We want a God that we can manage, a God that works for us, a God that will stay out of the way until we think we need him 
and then we'll let him in on a limited basis. This is the Almighty God who created you and created all things and sustains all things at all times. That's who we're dealing with. He's your God. He knows your name. He has a plan for you. He's made promises to you. He sent His Son to die for you. The creation of the smallest insect or atom, much less the producing of the incredible variety of creatures in this world, can only be a demonstration of His magnificent power. His omnipotence is an ocean that can't be fathomed. Therefore, Paul wants us to know that the comforts, that there are comforts that stream from that, from that power, that cannot be exhausted. God's not going to grow weary. He's not going to run out of power. He's not going to come up short. He can do all things by His holy will, and His holy will has been declared in His Word, in His everlasting covenant, that He will be our God, and we will be His people. Or think of all the political and military power in the world. It takes up a good bit of news every day that we watch the news or read the papers. It's taken up much of human history, right? Kings and presidents and armies and all kinds of political power and forces. Add it all up. It's nothing compared to God. Isaiah 40.15 Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the islands as a very little thing. Psalm 2 describes the world's political leaders and, their pow- and the powers and their efforts to break free from the power of God. Here's what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? What are they plotting? What is their conspiracy? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed Christ, saying, you got the picture? All the kings, all the political powers of the world have come together and they're having a meeting. And they're saying, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about God? What are we going to do about His Son? Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We're tired of God telling us what we can and can't do. Here was, here's God's response. Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. That's all the political and military power ever. We all suffer from unbelief, from doubts, from hesitations. Don't you? We're timid in our prayers. We're afraid to ask for what seems to be impossible. But the text tells us to never hold back. 
John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, wrote these words in one of his other hymns as he considers who it is we're praying to. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. So don't ever be limited by the probable or even the possible. The Bible reveals that there are many things beyond our knowledge and understanding. Love, we've already read about that in in Ephesians 3, about a love that surpasses knowledge, about a peace that passes understanding, or infinity, or eternity. There are many things that go beyond what we can all put down on a piece of paper in a list. But they're real. Here's what we must never forget. God is not a man. God's power can never be limited by our own minds. In fact, he loves to do things in both the regular and the irregular way. He likes to do things both fast and slow and small and large Often, most often, we're more like Sarah who laughed when God told her what he was going to do. And even Mary. Can you imagine? I mean, we're sympathetic with Mary, right? The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. And remember in Luke 18, when Jesus said this about the rich young ruler, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the the people that heard that responded, who then can be saved? What was the answer Jesus gave? The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Have you ever thought of a particular person? They're so messed up or bitter, that nothing could save them. They would never be saved. They would never come to Christ. They would never know the Lord. They would never bow the knee. You know some people who are hostile to Christ? But He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Don't stop praying. Now that is just some of the objective power we could spend 
eternity. What about the subjective power? Beyond that objective truth of his great power, we have the subjective, in other words, our own experience. The power of God can sometimes seem remote, remote from us anyway. God did things in history, he did things in the Bible, but what about in my life? Sometimes it's easy to miss what's right in front of us. Paul says in this doxology that this is according to the power that works in us. Note that this is present tense, that is, is already working in us. Right now, if the Spirit is working in your inner man, then you'll, you, have a, you begin to have some sense of that power, a feel for it, if you will. Paul had to have had his own experience in mind when he wrote this. At the beginning of this chapter, he said, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Consider where he started before God's power intervened in his life. We read in Acts 26, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." Paul was not just a skeptic. Paul was an enemy of Jesus Christ. How could this guy ever become a Christian? And how did the Gentiles, strangers to the covenants of promise, how did they get brought in? Nothing but the great power of God. This is the same power of God that is at work in every Christian It is the power that brings us from death to life, and we know this through experience. And then finally, I want us to consider what Paul talks about here when we come to this last phrase of the doxology, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, the church herself is a miracle wrought by God. He took Jews. He took Gentiles. In fact, he took people from every tribe and every tongue. Each with what appeared to be insurmountable problems. Particularly, imagine, between the Jews and the Gentiles who didn't, not only didn't speak to each other, despised each other. And he made them one. This could never happen. It was impossible. Look at, we're still trying to do that in the Middle East, right? Try to get groups of people together and pretty much we realize this just goes on and on and on. That is until God moves in the heart of this man and this woman and this guy and this guy. It did happen. It is happening. We just saw a video this morning then the Sunday school where God is doing that very thing right now. Not just way back then, 
Not just in the Bible times, but in our own day, He's doing it as we speak. It's only by His great power that we both, or we all, have access by one Spirit to the Father. Remember, this is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul has already described this in chapter 1 of Ephesians. The exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power. There's your military and government forces, uh, political forces. Um, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. God created the world out of nothing by the word of His power in the space of six days and all very good. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Everywhere we look, His power is on display, but nothing declares His power and His glory more than the church. This is, his, this is the body and the bride of Christ. It is built out of ordinary people. Maybe a better way to say it, it's built out of dead people that He made alive. He took a bunch of corpses. Got the picture of the Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones? I want an army. There's the recruits right there. Bleached bones laying out in an open field under the sun. Speak to those bones. Can those bones live? Ezekiel's great answer, Lord, you know. He knew better than to answer. Because what, what would he want to say? I don't think so. I doubt it. But we'll see. Speak to those bones. Okay. So he does. And they rattle and move a bit, but they're still bones. They're, they're still dead. And God asks again, can those bones live? Uh, Lord, you know. And he says, speak to the wind, which is the spirit. He prays. So the Spirit comes, and lo and behold, breath comes back into these reassembled bones and bodies. And there rises up an exceedingly great army to the Lord. That's the church. That's you. And so, it's not surprising that Paul said to him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. How can you add to that? An infinite number of ages. Forever and ever. We say that so commonly that we sometimes forget to think about what that's saying forever. And you and I will be there for all of it. Just in a train passing by and we're, it comes here and we wave as it leaves, we're on the train. 
We're going where it goes. Now that, brothers and sisters, is something to sing about. As a result of this great power, we are consoled that we need not fear men or devils, for there is nothing so strong that he cannot overrule, overrule it by the strength of his might. That great line in Luther's mighty fortress, speaking about the devil, one little word shall fell him. Our trials can never be so great as to overcome his power to deliver us. That power by which he brought light out of darkness, he set the boundaries of the ocean, he dried up the Red Sea uh, by a rebuke, and with only a word, he can also calm the turmoil of our souls and spirits. He can level the Goliaths that threaten us. There is no resistance that he cannot overcome, no stronghold that he cannot demolish, and no tower that he cannot level. Let's pray. Father, your word is unalterable and your power is invincible. In this truth, we find our hope, our assurance, and our strength. By your power, you made us, and by your power, you redeemed us, and by your power, you shall raise us up from the dead. And now, Lord God Almighty, as we consider the new heavens and the new earth, may the power and preeminence of Christ be pressed upon our minds. And may we not lack deep thoughts of it. May we truly come to trust you and to cast our weak and powerless selves into your mighty arms. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pastor and author Jerry Bridges writes this, God often requires our faith in the carrying out of his purposes. We see this in the healing of the demon-possessed boy. Mark, in his account, brings this out sharply in Jesus' conversation with the boy's father. The father, in great distress, says to Jesus, But if you, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He had already experienced the failure of the disciples, so he was not sure if Jesus could help. His faith at this point may be described as no more than an uncertain hope that Jesus could do what the disciples could not do. Jesus responds to the Father and says, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Biblical faith may be described in different ways depending on the situation. The description of faith in Hebrews 11.1 as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen was appropriated for the Jewish recipients of the letter who were facing severe opposition and needed to be encouraged as to the certainty of their hope in Christ. For the father of the boy, faith would mean believing that Jesus could heal his son. We are often like that father. We may face what seems to be an intractable situation 
And because we have prayed a long time without an answer, we began to doubt that God can answer our prayer. But we must believe that God, with God, nothing is impossible. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, doubted that God could give them a son in, her, in their advanced age, to which God replied, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Centuries later, the prophet Jeremiah wavered in his faith when God told him to buy a field in the face of the Chaldeans, uh, Chaldeans' invasion. Again, God's response was, Is anything too hard for me? To have faith in God, even in the face of unanswered prayer or a seemingly impossible situation, means we continue to believe that He can do what seems impossible to us. The importance of faith is further emphasized in Jesus' answer to the disciples' question, why could we not cast it out? He said it was because of their little faith. We are not told in what, their, in what way their faith was deficient. We do know that Jesus had previously given them authority over demons to cast them out. So why was their faith so weak at this particular time? Perhaps it was because the demon did not respond immediately to their command, and so they began to doubt the power of Jesus. Or perhaps they presumed that because they had been successful before, they would be at this time. And so we see that faith not only involves a firm reliance on Jesus' power and ability, but also a complete renunciation of any confidence in our own power. And as we come to the table today, I think that's a point I wanted you to bring to the table today, is to think about this is not just about turning to God, turning to Jesus in times of trouble and difficulty, and then handling it on our own the rest of the time. It's learning to walk with him at all times, to recognize that he is the one who is at work in us, enabling us, empowering us, teaching us, training us, even through the trials, even through the challenges, that he is at work and accomplishing and even overriding, you know, the, of course, the story of Joseph. His brothers intended it for evil. God intended it for good. But remember, we have the advantage of reading the whole story. We know how the story ends. We know what Joseph came to realize and see at the end of the story. But I don't know that Joseph saw any of that while he was going through all those incredibly difficult trials, like prison. God didn't tell him how the story ended. But we read over and over, and the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. And so, we come to the table today to be reminded of who we are, that we've been purchased, that we're not our own, that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. O Lord our God, never let us foolishly think that any battle, spiritual or material, has been won by our own power. Remove all pride from us and give us implicit trust in you and a desire for you to have the glory. In the battles of this day, let us lean upon your arm and have true victory. Remind us of Israel's conquest of the land, that it was not by their own sword or by their own arm. You did not choose Israel because it was a nation greater in number than any of the other nations or more powerful, cultural, or intellectual, but because of your great covenant love. Keep us from saying or thinking, my power and the might of my arm have gained me this wealth. Instruct our minds and keep us sober that we might 
Hope fully in your grace. Neither let us be afraid or ashamed of the gospel, for it is the light of the world, proclaiming the Savior, the saving work of the Savior, and proclaiming the victory in Jesus. Bless now our meal, our fellowship, our rest, and our rejoicing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.